So let's uh, shall we begin. Let's begin with prayer, and then we'll, we'll begin. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, during this 500th anniversary of the Reformation, that we have the opportunity uh, to look at the work you did uh, during those years and the amazing way that you used uh, different people uh, to do uh, such great works for your glory. Uh, And we pray that you'd help us tonight, Lord, to uh, be inspired as we look at the life of William Tyndale. Uh, And I pray, Lord, that we would uh, be awake and alert and ready to listen and learn, uh, and that through this, Lord, it would draw us closer to you and stir us in our hearts to love you, to love your word, uh, and to live for your glory, in Jesus' name, Amen. All right. So we've looked. Uh, this is the third uh, session uh, on the Reformation. The first one uh, we looked at an overview, uh, and last month we looked at Martin Luther, uh, and today we're going to look at William Tyndale. I'm not going to tell you uh, what he was famous for, anything like that, right now. We're just going to talk about him, and you'll see uh, as we go. But before uh, we begin, I want us to do something, uh, and the reason I want us to do this is uh, just to see how you feel as you do this. This is something very familiar to some of you. Some of you may have never done this before. Uh, That's fine. But we're going to say the Lord's Prayer together, uh, and we're going to stand to do it. We're not going to do it in Old English or anything like that. I'm going to show the words on the screen so you can follow along. But let's stand. Uh, We'll say uh, the Lord's Prayer together, and then I'll explain why we're doing that afterwards. So let's stand. And let's, let's pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Okay, please be seated. I apologize for that. It shows that a lot of you know it. Uh, And part of the reason that you know it so well uh, is because of the way it's written, and the way it's written is because of William Tyndale. But... Uh, Apart from uh, feeling quite funny at the beginning because the words went up there, uh, I wonder how you feel when you say those words together as a congregation uh, in church. Now some of you may feel nothing at all. Uh, Some of you may really feel as you pray the Lord's Prayer, it means something to you. uh, And you really feel in the spirit of prayer as as you do it. Some of you may be wondering, well what on earth does it mean? But I wonder, did any of you, you can put your hand up if this was you, did any of you feel really scared as you were reading those words? Did any of you feel terrified to be saying the Lord's Prayer? No? Well, did any of you wonder, is someone going to come and arrest us because we're saying the Lord's Prayer? No? I didn't feel like that either. But 500 years ago, What we have just done was something that was totally radical. And it was revolutionary. It was actually one of the most dangerous things that you could possibly do. And on the 4th of April, 1519, one woman and six working men 
were burnt at the stake just down the road in Coventry. They were burnt in front of their children. And the reason? They were teaching the Lord's Prayer to their children in English. So what we have just said together 500 years ago would mean that we would be punished by being burnt at the stake. That woman and those working men were teaching this prayer with these words or very similar words to their children and they died for it. At the time, the Bible was in Latin and so nobody apart from a few could understand it. There were scraps of the Bible available in English and you were very, very blessed indeed if you could get a whole translation of the Bible in English. And the reason it was so hard was one, it was illegal, but also the only copies you could get were handwritten copies of a Bible translated by John Wycliffe. He translated the Bible from the Latin into English, but they were very, very rare indeed. John Wycliffe translated the Bible and he taught other men to do the same. And these men were called Lollards. And Lollard means poor preacher. And they were trained up to write the Bible out in English and then they were sent all over the place preaching that word to different people. But the authorities, they didn't like John Wycliffe. And after he died, two different laws were passed. The first was passed by Parliament, so that was the state. And it was called the Burning of Heretics Law. And it did what it said on the tin. It burnt heretics and it was specifically aimed at Bible translators. And the second law was by the church. Now there was state law and there was church law. And this was by the Archbishop of Canterbury in 1408 and it was called the Constitutions of Oxford. And it outlawed people from translating the Bible into English and from reading it in English. So you had the burning of heretics law and the constitutions of Oxford, both of which were aimed at and banned translation of Bible into English and reading the Bible in English. And it was because reading the Bible in English was classed as heresy that those people in Coventry were burned. And they weren't the only ones. There were many others as well. In the Roman Catholic world at the time, the Bible was only to be understood by the priest and the people had to listen to what they were told by the priest in church. They were not allowed to read and understand it for themselves. And it was into this world in 1494 in Gloucestershire that William Tyndale was born. In Gloucestershire, there was a lot of Lollard influences and possibly... His family had parts of the Bible in English themselves. There's not a lot of information about William Tyndale's early life, but we know that they were involved in the cloth trade, so they would import and sell cloth all over the world. And later on in life, this was to be really helpful for Tyndale for two reasons. One, the cloth trade was an international trade. And so dealing with people from all over the place meant he had to learn different languages. 
But also the cloth trade had all sorts of roots all over the place that enabled him later on to use those roots and, and hide Bibles in barrels of cloth and send them back into the country. When Tyndale was 12 years old, in 1506, he was sent to Oxford University for his education. Now that may seem, wow, he must have been really uh, precocious, uh, really amazing at 12 years old, but it was quite normal in those days. I mean, remember, life expectancy was a lot shorter. It was quite a normal thing for a 12-year-old to go for Oxford University. And he was ordained as a priest in 1514. And it was in Oxford where William Tyndale's mind was trained. Among other things, he had to learn what was called the art of rhetoric. Now, rhetoric is the craft of choosing and placing words. And the Dutch scholar Erasmus, who will come up uh, again later, he wrote a book on rhetoric, and it was called Decopia, which was the standard textbook for students at the time. And the book contained exercises that honed people's skills in rhetoric. And I want us to try one of those exercises. Okay? So you can do this with the, the person so you're sitting next to or the group of people that you're with. This is one of the things that they had to do. And I'm going to give you two minutes uh, to do this. They had to come up with 150 ways of saying, your letter has delighted me very much. Your letter has delighted me very much. So you have two minutes, and I'll, I'll time it, to see how many ways you can say, your letter has delighted me very much. So go. Okay, that's the time. So if you draw uh, your latest sentence to a close. Uh, how, did anyone get more than 20 ways? No? Uh, more than 10? Okay, so you can see it's a difficult exercise, isn't it, to do? But hopefully you can also see from doing that that you can see how this kind of training was God's presence to train Tyndale's mind to be able to use words in such a way in Bible translation. When he was translating the Bible, he had been trained to such an extent that when he saw a word in Greek or Hebrew, he would have a whole raft of English words that he could use to put in as that word or phrase, and he could pick the best one that people would understand. Tyndale obviously loved languages. In fact, so at the end of his life, he could speak eight of them fluently. English, Latin, French, Spanish, Italian, German, Greek, and Hebrew. Now, some of these, such as German, he learnt in exile while he was away from which we'll see later. And Hebrew, he had to learn that in exile so that he could translate the Old Testament of the Bible. It's fair to say, having read lots about him, that he is a, a literary genius. 
But in 1519, Tyndale moved to Cambridge. A few years earlier, uh, Erasmus had published the New Testament in Greek, which we've looked at the last couple of sessions, and it was a, a huge moment in the history of the church. People began to read uh, not just a Latin Bible, but a Greek one too. Now, how many of you can read uh, Latin and Greek? Probably not many, maybe some of you can, well, good for you. Uh, but of course, it's only certain people, and at this time, certain educated people, that could read Greek. But nevertheless, it took Europe by storm. And one of the reasons that Tyndale moved from Oxford to Cambridge was because he wanted to master Greek, and Cambridge was the centre of excellence at the time for studying Greek. But the other reason was that at Cambridge, there were more people there who were interested in understanding the Bible in Greek, and Tyndale wanted to meet and discuss with these people. And they met in a pub called the White Horse Inn. And in this pub, people who were uh, interested in discussing the Greek New Testament and the writings of Martin Luther, which were coming through into the country, although illegally, they met in this pub and they discussed these things together. In 1520, Tyndale moved back to Gloucestershire. And he moved there to be the tutor of a man, of a, to the children of a man called John Walsh. And they lived in a place called Little Sodbury Manor. And you can go and visit Little Sodbury Manor in Gloucestershire. Uh, it's still, it's still there. His job there was to tutor the children, but really it gave him the time to also study more. And as he studied the Greek New Testament more and more, God's word captured his heart. And while he was there, uh, it was uh, John Walsh was a, a noble man in the society, and he would have lots of people come and sit around his table for various business reasons. And many priests would come and sit at the table in Little Sobri Manor. And when these priests came, William Tyndale would talk to them about the Bible. And Tyndale believed God's word and what God's word said about Christ. And how Christ alone justifies sinners. And Tyndale was making a name for himself, both in his preaching around the area, but also by the way that he would argue with the priests that would come and sit at the table in this sobri manner. Life was becoming dangerous for him because he was being known for holding Lutheran views. And it was at one of these discussions at Little Sobri Manor with one of the priests, that Tyndale famously revealed the goal of his study. He was arguing with a priest about the need for people to understand the scriptures and to understand the truth of what Christ has done. And the priest said these words, We were better, we were better without God's law than the Pope's. So in other words, the priest was saying we're better off to have what the Pope says and not what the Bible says. And Tyndale famously said these words, I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God spare my life ere many years, I will cause a boy that driveth the plough shall know more of the scripture than thou dost. He was saying to this priest who uh, was arguing with him that I am going to translate the Bible so that even one that drives the plough 
will understand the scripture. And the interesting uh, historical fact is the ploughboy couldn't read. He was translating it so the ploughboy could have it even read to him and he would understand the word of God. And from this point in his life, William Tyndale's direction was set. He was going to be a Bible translator. Well, at the time, as we know earlier, Bible translation was not allowed. It was outlawed. But there was a proviso in the constitutions of Oxford. If a priest, rather, sorry, a bishop, high up in the church, gave his permission, well then you could translate the Bible. And so Tyndale goes to London to meet a man called Cuthbert Tunstall. He was a friend of Erasmus, and Tyndale hoped that Tunstall would be willing to allow him the permission to translate the Bible into English from the Greek But Tyndale was turned down flat. Tyndale came to realise that he would never in England be able to get the Bible translated into English. For people like Tunstall, even if Tunstall was friends with Erasmus, he was high up in the church, he didn't want to move things and shake things, he didn't want his position to come under threat. It was just too dangerous. And so Tyndale knew There was no way he would get permission in England to translate the Bible. And so he went into exile. His desire was to have a Bible translated into English from the Greek. And so the only way he could do it was to leave England and go to the continent. And in 1524, Tyndale leaves England, and he doesn't know this at the time, but he never returns. Now there's speculation as to where he went next, but the next place we know where he is, is in Cologne in Germany. And by this point, the New Testament translation is well underway. It's really hard in Tyndale's story to track down where he is. And the reason for that is because he was always in hiding somewhere. But we we know that at some point he was in Cologne. And he'd been working on his New Testament translation. He had been working on it while he was in England. And he took the work with him into exile and carried it on there. And while in Cologne, Tyndale was ready to publish his Bible. And so he needed a printer. And printing the Bible was really dangerous. And so it wouldn't have been easy to find a printer. But he did find one. A man called Peter Quintel. Now, he agreed in part because, though it was dangerous, the printers could charge a really high price. And so it was very lucrative, although dangerous, to print the Bible in English or any other language apart from Latin. And so Quintel agreed to do it as long as it was kept quiet. But whilst in Cologne, there was a Bishop Tunstall man there who also was happening to use Quintel for some printing. And he, he took Quintel's men out with him to have a drink. And they had a little bit too much to drink. And Quintel's uh, workers talked a little bit too much. They said that soon England was going to be Lutheran. They were going to believe the, the doctrines of Martin Luther. 
And Tunstall's man asked, well, why is that? And they started to explain that something was being printed in Quintel's print house that was going to set England ablaze. Well, Tyndale was in trouble. Bishop Tunstall's man found out where Quintel's uh, 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 papers were. He found out where all this was going on and he went there to destroy it. But Tyndale was tipped off. And he went there and he managed to grab some of his work. But he lost the majority. He only managed to get the first 22 chapters of Matthew's Gospel. Uh, it wasn't done in chapter form at the time, but from our Bible, that's, we, we have an idea of how much that is. And he, he, that's all he left. Can you imagine, in, in those days, the, there was no cloud computing. There was no external hard drives. We all, um, sure, know what it's like to lose something on the computer. But imagine, years and years and years and years of work had gone into this, and he lost the majority of it. it most of it was burned. But with the first 22 chapters of Matthew, he fled to Worms, which was, if you remember last time, where Luther took his stand all those years before. That was a place uh, where people were sympathetic to the Reformation, and he could continue working. And he found a printer there, and in 1526, he managed to uh, finish the first English translation of the New Testament from the Greek. It was pretty fast work. He worked hard to get from uh, just the first bit of Matthew, uh, just a couple of years, uh, less than two years later, to get the whole of the New Testament. Uh, this is what it would have looked like. Uh, I've got a copy you can look at afterwards. You can see uh, the size of it is very small. Uh, the reason it was so small is because this Bible was designed to be hidden. And so if you imagine people in their cloaks, they could take the Bible and they could put it in their cloak so that you couldn't just walk around with it. It was hidden in people's cloaks so that people wouldn't know that they had a Bible. But there it was, the 1526 New Testament Bible, the first Bible translated into English from the Greek. I say you can come and have a look at it a bit later on if you want to. Now, once it was printed, though, you would have to get it into England where it was banned. How did Tyndale do this? Well, he used his connections from the cloth trade. Cloth merchants had Bibles in barrels wrapped up in pieces of cloth, which were smuggled into England along the River Thames. And they went to a place called the Steel Yard. And in the steel yard, there were lots of people who were sympathetic to the Reformation. Lots of people, in fact, from Germany were there. Uh, and they helped smuggle the Bible in barrels of cloth all over the country. Uh, and it was distributed. Now, Bishop Tunstall, he knew that this was going on. And he tried to get hold of as many of these Bibles as he could so that he could destroy them. And in October 1526... Bishop Tunstall had a special church service which would culminate with the burning of copies of Tyndale's translation of the Bible. And he preached a sermon, and this was the title. Can you imagine uh, this being the title of any sermon that we would have here? It was called this, Why We Don't Need the Bible in English. Now imagine if I, if I said, come, listen to this. I mean, I'd be fired, rightly. 
But this sermon is important because it gives, in the sermon, Cuthbert Tunstall gives some of the reasons why the Roman Catholic Church did not want us to have the Bible in English. And there are five uh, reasons. Here they are. This is what they said. First of all, English is crude. It is not worthy of God's word, unlike the magisterial language of Latin. Secondly, Errors might creep into an English translation of the Bible, so it's better not to translate, as if there were no errors in the Latin translation, which wasn't true. Each person will become his own interpreter, and they can make mistakes and be condemned. And so as an example, they said, well, if people read in English what Jesus says about plucking out eyes and cutting off arms, can you imagine what they would look like walking around the streets? Number four, only the priests have the divine grace to translate the scriptures. And number five, and the underlying reason, I mean he didn't say number five, but really this is the main reason. The monarchy, the church, and the elite can keep people ignorant and obedient to them if they did not know what the Bible says about what God requires. And that was their attitude of Tunstall and his friends. They didn't want a Bible to change the status quo because they wanted control themselves. And so at some point after 1526, Tyndale uh, moves to Antwerp. He goes somewhere else. He's always on the run. Tunstall and his men, and later we'll see Thomas More and his men, are always after him. And so he moves uh, to Antwerp. Now there are a number of advantages to living in Antwerp. It's a very nice place, uh, no doubt, but the, there was great advantages. There was an English community there who were favourable to the Reformation. They lived in a place called the English House. And there people would, he would be able to meet people speaking in English, he could test out his translations with them, and all sorts of things. But in Antwerp there were more printers and more merchants that could get the Bible out. And it was in Antwerp that Tyndale translated the first five books of the Old Testament from the Hebrew, which he had learnt at some point between 1527 and 1529. And the amazing thing with this is that Hebrew was not a commonly taught language. It wasn't known in many universities, and it was, un- I mean, people don't really know where exactly Tyndale had learnt this. Uh, most people think it was in Worms, where there was a Hebrew uh, teacher. Many others think that there was a, he would meet a rabbi and learn Hebrew there. But either way, it was an amazing thing that he learnt the Hebrew language to such an extent that he could translate the Bible from there into English and people could have that for themselves. It was whilst in Antwerp that Tyndale wanted to revise this version uh, this of the translation into a revised edition that improved the language that was in here. Tyndale was always wanting to make things better. And there's a funny story attached uh, to this at time in Antwerp as he was trying to translate the Bible uh, to a, a more updated version. Whilst he was there in Antwerp, uh, Tinder, uh, T- Bishop Tunstall came for a visit. 
Tunstall uh, was on business, but also he was always on the lookout for where Tyndale was and what printers were printing Tyndale's Bibles. And Tunstall decided that the only way he could get hold of all of the Bibles was to buy them and then burn them. And so Bishop Tunstall decided to buy as many of these Bibles as he can. And so the printers found this out and they said, sure, we'll sell you the Bibles. But they inflated the price four times the amount that it was worth. And so Bishop Tunstall bought all of these Bibles for an inflated price. And all of that money, not all of it, but a lot of that money went back to William Tyndale so he could write his updated 1534 edition of the New Testament Bible. It's amazing how God used an enemy of the Bible to pay for the new translation. And so those old versions were burnt, but as they were being burnt, new, uh, the new uh, one was coming out and being sent all over the place. But it was in Antwerp that the persecution against Tyndale and his friends really intensified. This persecution was mainly at the hands of Thomas More. Thomas More, uh, he was Henry VIII's uh, Lord Chancellor. He was the, 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 I guess, the Prime Minister, you might say, something like that. And Thomas More was a devout Catholic, and he hated Martin Luther, and he hated William Tyndale, and he hated everything they stood for. And he would write against Tyndale. And over three quarters of a million words were written by Thomas More against William Tyndale. And it was horrible words, words which I wouldn't even want to read uh, for the much of it because it's just disgusting things that he would say. Now Tyndale did write back and defend himself, but the, uh, and he, he would use you know, pretty strong language himself, but the, the, the diatribe and the verbal assaults against Tyndale was very vicious indeed. But when you cut through the filthy language that Moore was using, you can see that the arguments really boiled down, not to anything to do with his character, but all to do with his Bible translation. And there were actually five key words that Tyndale translated from the Greek into English that shook the Roman Catholic Church to its very foundations. And it was these five words that most of, when you get through all of the horrible language, that Moore was writing against. And I'll show you the five words uh, on the screen. So instead of priest, presbyteros was translated elder. Instead of church, ecclesia was translated congregation. Now you may wonder why, why that is. Uh, the reason was because at the time, church was seen as the, the Roman Catholic hierarchy, the Roman Catholic church organization, whereas Tyndale rightly saw the church as a group, a body of believers. So he used the word congregation. Uh, and this one, the third one is a very, very important one. Instead of do penance, uh, metaneo was translated um, Repent. Repentance. My words are different in the script. I got it wrong. Repent. Um, and that's really important because do penance is very different, isn't it? It's about what you do. 
I must do things. Thomas More would, would beat himself up with uh, whips and things like that and wear a hair shirt and all those kind of things in order to save himself. That was doing penance. But Tyndale rightly saw this and said, no, it's repentance. It's turning from sin to Jesus Christ and trusting in him for our salvation. Instead of confess, uh, exomologeo was translated Admit. Again, the reason, because confession was seen as go to the priest and tell him your sins and, and he'll intercede for you. But it's, that's not what it means. It's to admit your sins to God, the only one who can forgive you through Jesus Christ. And instead of charity, which again is things we do, agape was translated as love. Now, the words that were translated by Tyndale are the correct meanings of these Greek words in English. But they totally undercut the Roman Catholic Church's theology. No more priests, no more penance, no more confession and works of charity. The church is not an institution from Rome, but a group of believers that are together. One writer on William Tyndale, David Daniel, says this. Tyndale cannot possibly have been unaware that these particular words undercut the entire sacramental structure of the thousand-year-old church throughout Europe, Asia, and North Africa. It was the Greek New Testament that was doing the undercutting. And Thomas More recognised this. And as a Catholic zealot, he did all he could to discredit Tyndale and dis, as, he dis, as Tyndale dismantled everything Thomas More held dear. But the persecution was not only verbal. Thomas More brutally murdered many of Tyndale's friends and co-workers. And just imagine how it must have felt for William Tyndale to know that back home in England, people were being tortured and put to death because of the work that he was doing. Because they were reading his Bible, because they were distributing his translation that he had worked on. You can imagine how hard that must have been for him being in exile, to stay in exile, to stay doing the work, knowing so many of his friends were suffering and dying at home. His best friend uh, was a man called John Frith. And John Frith, it was said, was a very talented and modest young man. And he helped Tyndale in translating the Old Testament. But while John Frith was in England distributing Bibles, he was arrested. And he was sent to the stake to burn. But while in prison, awaiting death, he received a letter from Tyndale. And I'm going to read the whole letter, but I'll put it up on the, the screen for you to read as well. This is what Tyndale wrote to his best friend while he was waiting death. Your cause is Christ's gospel, a light that must be fed with the blood of faith. If when we be buffeted for doing well, we suffer patiently and endure, that is thankful with God, for that end we are called, for Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps, who did no sin. Herein have we perceived love, 
that he laid down his life for us, so we too ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Let not your body faint. If the pain be above your strength, remember, whatsoever you ask in my name, I will give you. And pray to our Father that in his name he may ease your pain or shorten it. It's a lovely pastoral letter to a friend who is suffering in the name of Christ. But it must have been unimaginably difficult for Tyndale to bear the martyrdom of his best friend because of his work. But yet he continued with the work of translating the Bible into English. The easy thing for him to do would have been to hand himself in and save his friends. But he had one focus, get the Bible to the ploughboy. And this single-mindedness that Tyndale had was shown in another story. In 1530, uh, Thomas Cromwell, who at the time was uh, Henry VIII's like, chief of staff, he would get things done for King Henry, uh, he tried to get William Tyndale to come back to England. And the reason that he thought Henry might be pleased with this, Henry, by the way, was no fan of an English Bible at the time, but he was pleased with one of Tyndale's uh, other books that he wrote, who approved obedience to the king instead of the Pope. Now you can imagine, uh, we mentioned this uh, in the first session about King Henry VIII breaking with the Church of England, you, uh, with, the, with the Roman Catholic Church to create the Church of England. You can imagine Henry VIII being very pleased with the book that was circulated telling people to do this. So Cromwell sent a man called Stephen Vaughan to Antwerp but to persuade Tyndale to come back. Now Vaughan had no idea where Tyndale was, but word got around that Vaughan wanted to meet with Tyndale and it was arranged uh, by Tyndale to meet in secret outside the city walls. It's quite a, a story where uh, Vaughan has no idea who Tyndale is and as the story goes, Tyndale sneaks up behind him and tries not to show his face as much as possible. But when he met uh, Stephen Vaughan, uh, Stephen Vaughan made a generous offer to Tyndale. He guaranteed his safety and he said that Tyndale would have a high place in Henry VIII's court. But Tyndale said, I will come back if Henry VIII puts a, a, a declaration that goes out across England, written out, signed in his name, that people would be allowed to have a Bible in English. And he said, in fact, if, if people put a Bible in English and Henry VIII promises that, I'll come back and you can even kill me. I, but I just want the Bible to be out there. So Tim, the, king would ne well, he never, the king would never agree to this. And so Tyndale turned down the offer to go back. And Stephen Vaughan wrote back to Cromwell. And he said that I, he said he'd showed him what the king's royal pleasure was, but I always find him singing one note. I always find him singing one note. Tyndale had one note that he sung, and the note was this, get the Bible in English to the ploughboy. Well, whilst in Antwerp as well, Tyndale lived in a place uh, called Little England, that in house where English people would stay. Uh, and the house was owned by a man called Thomas 
points. And it was whilst living here in 1534 that a man called Henry Phillips, a man who had a way with words, managed to establish himself in the house. Now Thomas Points didn't trust uh, Henry Phillips. He thought there was something wrong with him, but Tyndale did trust him, very unusually, and Tyndale befriended him. Henry Phillips was a powerful man with connections in Roman Catholic circles, but he had squandered his money and was in serious financial problems. He was ideally placed to be paid as an agent to go in and to hand over Tyndale. And while the suspicious points was away on business, Phillips hatched his plan. He arranged to go out with Tyndale to lunch in the town. Antwerp was full of twisting narrow lanes and alleys, which didn't allow two men to go side by side. So one had to go in front of the other. And so Phillips uh, and Tyndale were walking to lunch, and Tyndale uh, said, no, you go first, Mr. Phillips, you, you go before me. And Phillips says, no, Mr. Tyndale, you go first. And so Tyndale goes through the alley. And as he goes through uh, the door, there are two soldiers waiting for him as he goes into the alley. And the two soldiers bundle Tyndale up. And Tyndale had no idea he'd been betrayed. In fact, he turns to uh, Henry Phillips and he says, Run, brother, run! And of course, Phillips did run. But Tyndale was taken uh, away. It wasn't until much later that Tyndale realised he had been betrayed. And he was taken to Villefort Castle in Belgium. And whilst he was there, priests and scholars were sent to him to debate Reformation doctrine. But Tyndale stood his ground and he argued back always from the scripture. And he would get really irate with them when all they wanted to do was talk in Latin. He'd be happy to talk in Greek or Hebrew. He really wanted to talk in English. But he really didn't like Latin. Tyndale's friends uh, tried to arrest him, or sorry, tried to rescue him uh, from prison, but it was to no avail. He was stuck in the dungeon for just over a year. It was cold, it was damp, it was dark. But Tyndale continued to write and translate. And whilst in prison, he wrote a tract called Faith Alone Justifies Before God. And he wrote this tract in part as an evangelistic thing, but so really people would know why he's dying. He wasn't dying because he wanted the Bible in English. He was dying because the reason he wanted the Bible in English was that so people would know that faith alone justifies before God. And perhaps his final letter, certainly one of his final letters, was to the prison governor. And it shows that he was still singing his one note until the end. And I'm going to again show uh, this letter uh, as well. This is the, uh, the last letter, a very touching letter he writes from his dungeon in the castle. I believe, right, he's writing this, by the way, to the governor of the castle, the one in charge. I believe right worshipful 
that you are not unaware of what may have been determined concerning me. Wherefore, I beg your lordship that by the Lord Jesus, that if I am to remain here during the winter, you will request the commissary to have the kindness to send me from the goods of mine which he has a warmer cap. For I suffer greatly from cold in the head, and am afflicted, affected by a perpetual catara, which is much increased in this cell. A warmer coat also, for this which I have is very thin, a piece of cloth too, to patch my leggings. My overcoat is worn out. My shirts are also worn out. He has a woolen shirt, if he would be good enough to send it. I also have with him leggings of a thicker cloth to put on above. He, also, he has also uh, warmer nightcaps. And I ask to be allowed to have a lamp in the evening. It is indeed most wearisome sitting alone in the dark. But most of all, I beg and beseech your clemency to be urgent with the commissary that he will kindly permit me to have a Hebrew Bible, Hebrew grammar and Hebrew dictionary, that I may be able to pass the time in that study. In return, may you obtain what you most desire, so only that it be for the salvation of your soul. But if any other decision has been taken concerning me to be carried out before winter, I will be patient, abiding the will of God to the glory of the grace of my Lord Jesus Christ, whose spirit I pray may direct your heart. Amen. William Tyndallus. Now we don't know whether this letter was answered or not, but I think we see in there the heart of Tyndale. He was cold and wet and there was practical things he needed, but if he couldn't have his warmer cap and leggings, his greatest wish was to have his Hebrew Bible, grammar and dictionary so he could continue the work of translating the Bible. Isn't that amazing? In August 1536, Tyndale uh, was led out of his dungeon. He was defrocked, meaning he lost his ordination as a priest. Uh, he was made to, to kneel, and they scraped his hand, signifying the removal of the anointing oil. The bread and the wine were placed in his hands, and immediately removed. And then he was stripped of his priestly robes, leaving him dressed as a layman. And he was led back into the dungeon, where there for another two months he stayed, until in October 1536, he was led out again, this time to his death. He was led to the stake, and he was asked, Will you recant? People were watching him, many in the crowd. Would Tyndale deny the faith for which so many of his friends would, had died? Well, the crowd uh, waited with bated breath for his response. But he died with a simple prayer. Lord, open the king of England's eyes. And Tyndale was put on the stake where his feet were bound with an iron chain around his neck and the executioner pulled hard on the chain and Tyndale was strangled to death before his body was burnt at the stake. 
one of the characteristics of most of the reformers was that they all expected that they could die at any moment. And this understanding of the danger of their ministry meant that they were willing to burn brightly for a short time. And in the short time that Tyndale lived, he shined brightly as a light for Jesus Christ. Before we look at his legacy in terms of the Bible in English, uh, I was struck in studying Tyndale's life, not just with his Bible translation, but with his simple faith and his focus on glorifying God through the work that God had given him. With Tyndale's talents, he could have made it really big in his day. There's no doubt he was a genius with languages. And yet he gave up worldly wealth and fame to spend his time hidden away in a small room. Most of his time was hidden in tiny rooms where he would have just a a candle and he would keep working until the candle burned out. And he would just keep going, translating his Bible. He had to live simply. He didn't have really any money. Uh, he, He lived simply, simple food, simple clothing. And when he did get money, he would just spend it on paper, ink and candles. And the money he had left after that, he would give it to the poor. He would work five days a week. And then he would take a day off. And the day off he would take, he would go around Antwerp giving money uh, to the English exiles and to other poor people that he met in the streets. In fact, one of the greatest testaments to the character of William Tyndale is that what is written against him, even by Thomas More, is never about his character, just always about his doctrine. Any chink in his armour would no doubt have been exploited. Now he wasn't perfect, of course, But he had a testimony for godliness. Even Thomas More, his greatest critic, said, Tyndale was a man of sober and honest living, who looked and preached holily. Thomas More's only fault with Tyndale was his gospel. Even in prison, Tyndale's life and sturdy convictions had an influence on those in the castle. Uh, Fox, who wrote the, the Fox's Book of Martyrs, writes that while Tyndale was in prison, his keeper, the keeper's daughter, and others of their household were converted by witnessing Tyndale debating with the priests. This man lived in the light of his death, and he wanted to redeem the time by focusing on the task that God had given him. And I think that's a great lesson to all of us. When in a day where, in comparison, it's easy to be a Christian and be nominal for our faith, we can look at Tyndale and see a man who should inspire us to use our time wisely for the glory of the gospel. And Tyndale had one, had one, one job that God had given him. It wasn't as if he was someone who planted a thousand churches or something like that and he's one of the, you know, he, he just had one job, one task that God had given him, one note that he sung, but he gave everything in doing that one thing that God had given him to do. And I'm sure many of us here wouldn't think that we have many hundreds of things we're able to do. Even if we have just one, do your best with that one and see what God will do.
But of course, Tyndale would want us to say that his greatest legacy is the Bible in English, which of course it is. As Tyndale died, he prayed, open the king of England's eyes. Well, did God answer his prayer? He certainly did. On the 5th of September, 1538, under two years after Tyndale had died, Henry VIII ordered that every church in England had to display one book of the whole Bible of the largest volume in English. And this Bible uh, was actually known as the Chain Bible. And the reason was that it was so popular that in order to stop it getting stolen or taken away, they had to chain it up. And people were, uh, the priests were preaching, but no one was listening to them. They would all crowd around the Bible and listen to it being read. This copy of the Bible, this translation, was by a man called Miles Coverdale. Uh, Miles Coverdale was actually a friend of Tyndale, and he was awaiting Henry's uh, consent to publish it. And Henry VIII asked, is there any heresy? And the priest, uh, the, the priest said, no, there's, there's no heresy. They were more sympathetic in uh, 1538 than 1536. And so it went ahead and was printed. God had answered Tyndale's dying prayer. But at the time, Tyndale was given no credit for this Bible. Uh, Miles Coverdale and a man called John Rogers, who was writing another English version, uh, they were given the credit. But their versions were Tyndale's New Testament, virtually unaltered. And the Old Testament had the first five books of the Bible exactly the same, pretty much, as Tyndale's. And the rest of the Old Testament, Tyndale did translate some of it, but whatever he didn't translate, the other translators would use his work to figure out how to translate the rest of it. They would use the Hebrew work Tyndale had done for the rest of the Old Testament. In 1611, King James ordered the authorised version of the Bible to be published. And this authorised version was what the English-speaking world read for over 400 years. It was only in the 20th century that newer versions of the Bible started coming out. And 90%, nine-tenths of the authorised version's New Testament is straight out of Tyndale's 1534 edition. David Daniel, who was an, is an expert on Shakespeare, but wrote an excellent biography on Tyndale, says that Tyndale has more of an influence on the English language even than Shakespeare does. In our Bibles today, even the most modern ver- versions contain phrases that Tyndale created for the Plowboy. Uh, here's a few. I mean, I could, I could be here for another hour giving you words and phrases of Tyndale. But here, here we go. Let there be light. Am I my brother's keeper? In him we live and breathe and have our being. In the beginning was the word, the salt of the earth. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Uh, that phrase gave up the ghost. That was William Tyndale. And he made up words that we take for granted that were made up by Tyndale so that the playboy would understand. There were words that perhaps were used in Gloucestershire or words that were just made up by him. Here, just a, a few examples. Uh, the Christian words that you would know. Uh, atonement, which means at one make. Uh, apostleship, intercession, uh, finisher, uh, judgment seat and mercy seat. Uh, he made up the word busybody. Uh, Stiff-necked, long-suffering, stumbling block, broken-hearted, Passover, uh, chastening. Uh, All these words William Tyndale uh, made. 
When you read the Lord's Prayer, even in most modern versions, uh, it's Tyndale. The Beatitudes, those words, uh, peacemaker, William Tyndale. It's still in our Bibles even today. But the greatest legacy of all is that we today have our Bible in our language, which is still not true for many people in the world today. Uh, one thing I, I hope that this uh, talk will inspire us to do is to, to pray, for example, for uh, the, the Wycliffe Bible translators, um, the Margets in Mali. They're doing this kind of work uh, in that country so people can have the Bible in their language. But I think that, for, and for us, I mean, we, Tyndale would be amazed today, wouldn't he, that we can have the Bible even on our mobile phones. But the best way we can honour Tyndale's legacy is to be as zealous in reading our Bibles as he was in translating them. Tyndale uh, was zealous in translating the scriptures, but he didn't just translate them so we could merely read. He translated them so that we would know through that translation the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and to know God and to live for his glory. And I, uh, and to, to his glory should be the one note that we sing and carry on the song that Tyndale and many others were singing in their day.